My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 169 of Legally Clueless. Thank you so, so much for rocking with this podcast. And if this is your first time, welcome to the family. We have grown so much. I got very emotional about it this earlier this week actually but (laughs) I'll try not to today but before we go further welcome to the podcast fam and make sure you join our fun little corners of the internet so on TikTok we are on Legally Clueless Africa on Instagram it's Legally Clueless Africa there's links to those two pages in our show notes if you want to chit chat about the podcast on Twitter use the hashtag Legally Clueless and then on YouTube you can check out our channel we're at Legally clueless and you'll find two seasons of our video series there and our tour series as well okay speaking of twitter before i go further let me just find those tweets there's a tweet i really super identified with this week ah here we go it's by Munyu, and they said, Listening to Legally Clueless by Adele has really seen me through some sticky situations. The most important thing it's taught me is that although everyone's story is different, but the important thing is that you should not give up because you never know how it'll turn out. Which I thought was so timely because when I saw this tweet on that very day, I'd had a really good day after a series of really dark days. Like when I say dark, those days that you're questioning the point of you being alive and just being like what's the point and then comes this one day that was so wonderful not for any like huge reason it was just a really wonderful day and I remember driving home thinking huh maybe sometimes I need to give life a chance like don't give up just give life a chance and then I saw that tweet and I was just like what we were on the same wavelength (laughs) so shout out to Munyu anyway so these links to our YouTube our TikTok and our Instagram in the show notes if you do not have show notes on the platform you're listening to this episode on just search Legally Clueless Africa on those platforms oh my god and if you check out our Instagram picture and our TikTok picture oh my god I haven't put it on our YouTube (laughs) check out our profile picture on our Twitter I mean on our Instagram and our TikTok we have a new logo (laughs) it's really super exciting because we're working towards launching something super important to me which this podcast is a part of and includes having this wonderful logo and i'm just really excited by it if you've ever started something from the ground up you understand my excitement (laughs) if you can't relate with this excitement Uh, I don't know, man, you're doing life wrong. Get yourself a logo. (laughs) Anyway, back to this episode. So this is what's coming up a little later. My dad never experienced me as an artist because he passed when I was 15. Because he was not those dad who sit and say, just listen to music. Who'd stand, he would dance, he'd ask me, like, do you know how to dance like a man? And do you know how to move? You know, women love men who know how to dance. I had my first business when I was in class seven. You know, I used to sell groundnuts. He say, I don't want you to ask me money for slippers, underwear, anything. You buy your own stuff. I hosted Bobby Wine the first time he came to Kibera. And because I want, like, if I go to Uganda, we have, like, 10 guys like me. We go to Rwanda, we have 10 guys like me. We go to Burundi, we go to Congo, we come to Kenya. So we have, like, this African youth movement that 
is focused on leadership, sustainability, arts. Even when I was in school, I saw people going to this Mandela Fellowship stuff, Obama Fellowship, leadership, this. I've never seen anybody from those programs run for any seat. I've never seen them talk against any, whether it's police brutality, whether it's just, just living standards, nothing. So why are they going to this program? That is Octopizo, who is one of the top rappers in Africa, of course, from Kenya. In case you do not know about him, you need to check out his music. I'll give you more details in a bit, but he is on 100 African Stories later on in this episode, and it was just so powerful recording his story. It's definitely one that's going to leave you super inspired. So before we get to that, I need to give you a song of the week this week i have so many songs i want to share but i feel like some of them have shared them before today i made a playlist a sunday playlist that i was jumping to the entire day i wish i could just like share the entire playlist with you but we just gotta pick one song from it which is hmm. okay i'm gonna share this one because it puts me in such a good mood even though i don't fully understand what she's saying i feel like it's her telling off a guy who doesn't want to pay bright price but i could be wrong <laughs> i'm just here for the vibes and even the live version is like so yummy it's by asha and i love her i'm such a stan and the name of the song is Vamidele. i don't know what it means if you're listening and you know what it means hit me up on instagram or twitter or something but even though i may not fully get the song i dig it that's the power of music isn't it so i've put a link to the song in the show notes make sure you check it out and jam to it so before we get to 100 african stories i want to share just a thought that came up while i had a conversation with one of my close friends and she was having not guy drama actually she was just trying to figure out something intimate relationship related and we arrived at the same thoughts because it's also something that came up for me in therapy right and we were talking about how we kind of get attached to people and you don't want them to leave so no matter how they treat you be it in a manner that you're not comfortable with or that you don't like or they irritate you or they just like straight up disrespect you you're not going to confront them or even like set up that boundary etc because you don't want them to leave you don't want to lose them and we always think about this mostly in like intimate relationships but this is the same for like friendships it's the same for relationships with family you kind of have to check if the reason you're just keeping someone around or keeping a friendship alive or a particular relationship alive is not because that relationship is like oh we've lasted so many years etc etc but it could possibly well we found this to be the case was be coming from a I don't want to be alone abandonment issues space. I feel like for me, the genesis of those abandonment issues came from grief. It's weird the type of like nonsense grief births and gifts you. You know what I mean? Like it's not only that, oh, you miss this person that died, but like it leaves you with so many other issues. Ah. So irritating, but yeah, I think it was just like a huge major loss of a person and a relationship for me that what I subconsciously started doing is like, did I just say subconsciously? <laughs> what the hell? Subconsciously started doing is just kind of like 
allowing things that I should not have allowed in various relationships to happen just because I was too scared of someone leaving. And even more than that is like I wouldn't ask for the type of relationships I wanted or like things to change in particular relationships because I just I didn't want to lose people after suffering this huge loss does that make sense anyway I just thought it was something to think about you may not relate with it if so yeah <laughs> you just then listen to me rumble on for for nothing anywho so as we jump into 100 African stories just a reminder that I partnered with the European Union to really amplify amazing Africans that they have partnered with and it's Africans doing amazing things in the tech space in the agriculture space, in the creative industries. This partnership has seen us amplify stories like in episode 151. We went all the way to Kisumu to record a story by Dorcas, who's a co-founder of Lake Hub, and they're just like a tech incubator co-working space all-round awesome. If you haven't listened to that episode, go and listen to Dorcas's story. She talks about quitting university about three times before she found her passion and now she's just doing amazing things in the tech space and mentoring so many young girls as well. We also, together with the European Union, partnered to amplify Moha's story and you probably know him as Moha Graphics. His story's in episode 153. He does like fantastic graffiti on matatus. If you don't know what matatus are, they're our public transport systems. So they're like vans, both like 13 sitters and much bigger ones. He's pretty famous because you'll constantly spot his name in like dope graffitied matatus and you'll see like a moha graphics in the corner. And his story was also super inspiring learning that, you know, he went from selling stickers to people who owned matatus to like stick in the matatus so that he could get food. This was after he lost his mom to like full on graffitiing the matatus to like running his own garage. We actually recorded his story in his garage. So it was like also a very inspiring story. And so now in this episode, the story you're going to hear is Octo Piso's story. And he is one of our top rappers in Kenya. I've been a fan of just the work that he does and his music for the longest time ever. And we were laughing when recording the story because he was one of the last people I interviewed before I quit my radio presenting job in 2019. So it was nice to kind of like reconnect. You know, his story goes from him growing up in Kibera, which is really looked at as being only like like a low economic area in Nairobi. But there's so many wrong stereotypes about Kibera and he references them. He talks about his mom and his late dad, him getting into music, his passion for Pan-Africanism that I was just like, holding myself throughout the recording from like clapping and cheering, especially at those parts, because that's my jam. He also talks for his unwavering love for where he grew up, which is Kibera. Legally Clueless, in collaboration with the European Union, supporting local initiatives. My name is Dr. Pizzo, a.k.a. Mohanga Don, and I'm from Kibera, number nine in Kenya. I think the best or one experience that I always ring back is every Sunday, uh, we had uh, Toast Mayai. 
that's the only day of the week that my dad allow you choose if you want to toss my eye or you want chapati. I don't know how you, um, bougie people call it, but it's, it's just the, the bread toasted with eggs. Mm -hmm. So you know when you have a toaster, but now in Kibera we didn't have a toaster, so it was a whole experience to make the bread and make the eggs and you know, Chayamaziwa that day will not be a strong tea. And we always look forward to Sundays because it was dope, it was mm -hmm. too dope. So that, and also my dad, every time he came late home, we had to be woken up. Even if it's 1 a.m., he never ate alone. Those are like childhood memories that I've still yet to understand why he used to do that. Actually, my first experience with music was my dad. He had, uh, we had a record player and we had like Owinom Siani, which was the, one of the biggest artists then, and Michael Jackson. So I grew up with uh, Michael Jackson, Owinom Siani, a lot of jazz. My dad only listened to BBC. He was, he was those kind of low men, you know, he was that guy who used to come back from work with his Sanyo radio, he goes outside, not even in the house, take the radio and then sit there and just open it loud and he's listening to BBC, you know. So he was the one who introduced me to music and he loved music as a dancer, but he couldn't, he couldn't sing or do anything. He was a painter though, so I just know the art was there because my, my mom was a saloonist, my dad was a painter. So I just wanted, I just had to find mine, but I loved music from him. He's the one who introduced me to music and I was allowed to listen to more music than watch TV. Yeah, we actually had TV when I joined Form 1. So that's when my dad had like a great wall and it was just wrestling we used to watch. But music, most, my music inspiration and my music, where I started listening to music is from my dad's LPs, which I have until today, so I kept them. I do, most of my samples are from actually my dad's collection. Like, I think even during that time, I didn't know I would be an artist. My dad never experienced me as an artist because he passed when I was 15 and I started doing music when I was like 20. Uh, but when I, was do, when I started now to go in a studio, like it was also my neighbor, it was called Kamau. We just had a camcorder. We didn't go to a studio like this. We had just a camcorder with a tape and we just used to tape ourselves freestyling. They're actually on YouTube. And sometimes I watch them, I'm like, man, that was... Was dope. But my first experience when I realized like I had more influence coming from him is when I started liking samples because I wanted always that feeling of that I used to feel with him. Like when you listen to music with him, it was it was like fun. It was like being at a show. Because he was not just that who sit and say, just listen to music. He would stand, he would dance, he'd ask me, like, do you know how to dance like a man and do you know how to move? You know, women love men who know how to dance. So you know, I had to do some moves and I was like, okay. And from that is when I started now thinking of a performance. When I go to a studio, I don't record. I didn't want to be a recording artist. I've always wanted to be a performance artist. And I started lo loving like live music. I met Dilly when I was working in a garage because Homeboys was just up there and my garage was down there in Baricho Road. So this is how we started like, that's my first time actually being in a professional studio. But before it was just camcorders, phone. We had another studio in Dagoretti Corner. I only used to have two beats. So I record like five songs in these two beats. So I'll record and record again on the same beat because I couldn't get a beat and I couldn't afford to, to have a beat. Then I was a very like, uh, what they call conscious, but I don't like using that word these days because now I have a better understanding of what actually that meant or conscious or like underground. No, it was just, I was just, it was more frustration. You know, it was rapping about like things that are happening in Kibera, all the stereotypes that we are hearing that was not true. 
And I remember everywhere I used to go, I used to say Kibera number nine, and you know, mood will just change. Because even before I started doing that, I never had any rappers rapping where they came from. Maybe we could fly a little bit, we know about they came from Dandora, but mostly it was Island or Dandora, but any other artist, I never knew where they came from. You know, uh, Joakali used to say Caliph, maybe Noninto used to say Caliph, but that was their staple, it was not where they're from. And I, I felt like, I don't know even, I couldn't relate to them because I didn't know where they came from, how to relate to what they were singing about. And for me, I felt like saying I'm from Kibera uh, gave me more power. It's like, it was the thing that took my butterflies away when I was on stage and I tell them like, hey, this is, this is the person you're dealing with. And it was not Kibera that they were used to, you know, they used to uh, maybe a drug, a gangster, it was like a swaggy Kibera that people until today still are not sure if I'm really from there. And you know, I tell them like, yo, from nursery to high school, Kibera, you know, and born there, everything. But I didn't give them what they expected. They expected the stereotype of, you know, you're a thug, you're this person. And I wanted to show them there's way so much stuff going on in Kibera that people don't know about. Mm -hmm. So much dope stuff, because anywhere in the world people are poor, anywhere in the world people are gangsters. There's nowhere in New York, Buffalo Hills, there's gangsters. So they can't make Kibera be this one way of looking at, you know, like violent people. And, you know, there's people poor in the States. I've seen people living under bridges. And I feel I was better in Kibera than living under a bridge in New York during winter. You can't compare, but we are more dehumanized compared to those guys because they're just in maybe first world. So I felt like I needed to give people another sense of Kibera, where it's fashion, it's food, it's style, it's uh, ambition. You know, is a is drive, is confidence that people most of the time people that I've worked with or met they confuse it with arrogance because I was too confident that they didn't expect you. They expect you to say yes, sir, or like yes, I'll do this, and that's never been me. And until now, many people don't know how to deal with it. I personally have never felt like I left. I think I left physically because I just wanted my daughter to have a different house and bringing. But I have all my family members there, like my mom's sisters, my cousins. That's home, like the salon that my mom used to uh, use is my grandpa's house. So that's, that's who we are, like we own it until today. Now it's like a, a small restaurant and they pay my aunt who still lives there the fee. And all my best friends, everybody I know, uh, everything from my writing to my styling to how I relate to people to my inspiration is there. So I felt like I've never, that's the only place I go anytime. Nobody bothers me. Could walk there now, go to any house and eat. Nobody bothers me. People treat me like me. They don't treat me like, oh, Octo, oh my God. No, they treat me like a normal person. And I, one, I love that because it gives me peace and it always Stay made me stay grounded and also it gives me room to understand things that are not changing and things that I can do now that I'm in a, a different place that I can pull some strings and change them. That's the beauty of it because what people don't realize, I started my foundation before I started rapping. From beginning I just wanted to do something in my community that will be impactful or also sustainable. I want people to remember me not because of music. Yeah, I don't want people to remember me for music. I want people to remember me for what actually, who did we trigger in the community that brought changes? What did we build? What system that we live there that the people that are coming after us don't have to go through this petty arrest and stuff. And also that's my dad's side of things. So 
business side is my mom's. My mom never smiled. Uh, it was business. I had my first business when I was in class seven. You know, I used to sell ground nuts. He said, I don't want you to ask me money for slippers, underwear, anything. You buy your own stuff. So that's my mom. It's like business and school. My dad was community and fun and, and, and drip. Like until now, we haven't reached my dad drip level. And he didn't even have that money that we have, but he still draped more than us. So me and my brother, we took the drip from my dad. But the community work is also my dad. When I started the foundation, I didn't even know what I was doing. It was more of like a community-based organization, so it was not a foundation yet. And two of my friends got shot because they were, they, they were found in some, you know, bad places. And we used to mostly like music or newspapers, we used to read in barbershops. So we finish high school, we know we're not going to uni. So it's either you hang at barbershop or you sell water if you're lucky, or you go to Django. When you finish high school, you still no one to do this job. So, you know, it's, we're just hanging at barbershops. And you start becoming suspect of anything. If anything goes wrong, it's like, Nia vijana tu, unakwaga tu hapa. So the first thing, I met this Australian guy, and I told him, like, I need a, a room where we can just go and chill, man. Like, because we, like, everybody, we can't stay at home, and we also can't just be sitting at the barbershop. And so we, they rented us, like, a one-bedroom at Olympic, and we turned it into our office. So what we used to, I used to just go in the neighborhood and tell people, like, hey, if you have nothing to do, just come chill with us. We had a CD player, so you come. But you come with your CD, you don't play my CDs. Everybody come with their music, they put, they listen, we talk. This is when we started hearing, you know, about like people out there living in their homes. It was, it was like a safe place for us. We didn't know what we were doing. I was not even rapping then. I was just, we just do, used to do cleanups. I was like, this weekend we're going to do cleanups, clean the drainages and stuff. Then we just chat. So some people say like, oh, I know how to draw. So they started doing graffiti. And some started dancing and we started rapping in this space and that's how we said like okay so we changed we started calling ourselves young gifted and black used to be called ygb and we said okay now we're gonna make this space only for creatives so if you come here you're either drawing you're rapping you're dancing this space is free but you have to do something that is creative and that's how we started so yeah through this like doing this community stuff we started doing like awareness concerts so when people there's always like those 16 days of activism whatever whatever people used to call us now to perform in this event you get a t-shirt and a soda and now the community started knowing who we are and we started meeting also the right people like the embassies you know so the embassies started coming like who is doing this and this then i met this organization they were called yume uplifting men and youth in africa which i thought was very interesting at that point and being in kibera because as brought up my dad never allowed me to be in the kitchen we're not allowed to wash clothes we're not allowed to change diapers and you know when they were not there now I had my daughter and I was a single dad at 21 it was tough so this organization was about empowering men and letting them know you can wash dishes you can change diapers it doesn't make you less of a man you can be in touch with the emotions you can cry and it was it was so dope but it was very it's a tough time you know in the 2000 people were like yo I'm not going to wash dishes. And so our job was to actually get young people to start learning this skill. Like, oh, I'm going wash There's men who don't know how to wash until now. You know, there's people who don't know how to change diapers of their own kids. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. And I think as a, as a man at that point, I, was, I got in touch with myself. And to understand like, oh, there's more to just showing people like I'm a bad guy, like I'm a bad boy. Because then 
the bad guy got the hottest girl, which was dope too. Because so the street, if you are the baddest, you have the baddest girl. Like I had the baddest girl in, in Kibera. But we realized like, oh, there's more to this than just being the bad guy. You know, there's more to life. What I didn't understand is to relate to now the people that were not from that community. And now this is where the school part was coming. So there was this uh, exchange program that I did with uh, Germany for Gote Institute. It was called Spoken Word. Me and MC Carl from Dendora. So we went to Berlin and that was my first time, you know, flying international. And we did a lot of workshops and being there, I kind of opened my mind. I had to see things that I've never seen. I had to see that there's possibilities of so many things that I thought were not possible. When I came back, I started investing, like more like saving to, to go to school. But before I even used that money, then there was another exchange program. I was called by the ambassador, for the U.S. ambassador, like, hey, we have this uh, leadership program. We wanted to go to the States for three months. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I will go. So many, many times, you not know, that time, you're hot, you're getting shows, you have money, but people didn't want to take those stuff. And that program, I was only told Kibaki and Moi are the people who went to that program. It was very one person per country. So I was the only one from here. It's called IVLP. We got, went to White House, went to like five different states and about impact, music and art. And after that, you were given like a, a serious certificate. So this, I, ne I never had papers to actually apply for uni. And I had my a Form 4 papers here, but uni was so expensive. Originally, I wanted to be a horticulturist which people don't understand why. But I never saw flowers in Kibera, and every time I, I used to see like these yellow flowers, I was so amazed, I was like, oh. And then I went up country when my dad lost his job, and then I fell in love with nature more. So I wanted to be an horticulturist, so that never happened. Then the second one, I wanted to be a clearing and forwarding guy to work in the airport, like I'm the one doing the, the cars that are coming in, I cleared them, and you're like, if you can't clear your car, I clear it for you, I take it. <laughs> that never happened too, because I didn't have fee. But when I did this program, then I got the certificate and I was just Googling like uh, social impact stuff. And I saw UPenn uh, had like an executive program, but it was so expensive, but I had everything that they needed. And I was actually going to use my own project. Then I was doing refugees for UNSCR as thesis. And it's something that I did and was successful. I was like, I have to, I have to apply for this stuff. And I applied and I got in. I was excited to get in because I didn't understand UPenn. So whoever was dating then, I told them like, oh, you know, I applied for this thing and they just, I got in. And it's like, what thing? It's like, ah, oh, University of Penn. What? UPenn? They were so excited. No, this is Ivy League, la, 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 la. How much? Can you afford it? It's like, yeah, I'd save some money, but it's, yeah, I'm like halfway there. So like, she was just like, I'll support you. I'll, I'll pay the half. You go. You have to go. Yeah. So I went there. I was, I was there for a year. And that's how I got. I wanted to understand the, mostly is how the West look at us, how people measure impact. Because most of the time people say, how do you measure impact? Before, you can't just tell people like, oh, this is what we did. They wanted written things, proposals, also just st statistics. But mostly, actually, I was just curious how those people look at us because I don't, I don't believe in charity myself. You know, it was, it's very one way is that I have, you don't have. I believe more in giving back because I understand. So I was always curious, like, these people don't understand us. They don't understand my lifestyle. They don't understand my language. They don't understand my culture. So how can they just come in, take this money? You know, like, that's, is, they're, like, making us not be better. It's, they're making us be part of this thing. That's why there's so many NGOs in Kibera, but nothing never changes. So I wanted to understand like 
how can we make this better? How can we make sustainable projects that we don't have to do every year we do the same project? We start it, we leave it to the community and they grow and you know, uh, have a better life. And that's why I went back to school. I think I learned how to deal with the, the West better. I could work in those rooms and I could hear them. Also, I knew how to say no, because uh, yeah, when in Kibera, I know, and grow up there, and when a white person come, you just agree to anything. I could do this like, yes, like, you know. So I learned that from that school, because in one of our lectures, they had a project showing Kibera, and they didn't know I was from there, and it was off. And so I just stood up and told them, like, no, that actually doesn't happen. That's a lie because I'm from there. I know this is open to, to see something being taught in class and to have balls to say like, yeah, no, this is not it. I'm from this place and we are not like this. It was, it was dope for me. I think I learned more to be able to look at that person in the eye and tell them like, no, no, this way. We have the solutions. We just don't have the, the system to make them happen. You don't have the solution. You have the other power that you can make us, but you can't give us your solutions. Like you didn't grow up here. It's the same way I always tell people, you can't come here and tell people, build toilets, just because you assume there's no toilets. People don't want toilets. People want jobs. People want to move out of there. Who, they don't want you to build toilets for them so that they can stay in the same neighborhood. Building a toilet doesn't change your lifestyle. You know, you can, make, if you have a job, you can even have your own toilet in the house. But if you have a toilet that is built by an organization and you still have to pay for it, like, why? So they didn't understand. That's what I realized. That they always just came and say, like, you know, I'm, from, I'm a graduate of this and this, and I know this will work like this and this. No, you don't. And that's what I learned, like, the, most of the time. They had dope ideas, and they had, like, you know, foreseen, like, father and how things should work, but they didn't know us. And those changes would never happen if it's not done by us. If it's not done from people in that community, it will never change. It doesn't matter how much money you pump in that neighborhood. If the people mentally are not prepared to, to like, have that transition, it's not going to change. And that's what I learned, like, okay, this is what we have to do things differently in my organization. And also just my projects are very, like, choreographed. I just don't do one project. I don't do one style of things. I don't do only art. Or people say, like, oh, you only have to support artists. Like, no, I, I, I work with people who don't even know who I am. They don't even listen to my music because it's more to me than, oh, you have to be a fan for me to reach you. No, mm -hmm. I don't need to deal with fans. I'm dealing with like a community, mm -hmm. which is have different uh, difficulties. And also we have the best community, I think, in every I've ever traveled. In this world, there's nowhere like Kibera. There's nowhere with the community love. There's nowhere with support. There's nowhere with manpower. There's, there's nowhere where people will be 100% with you. So I loved that about the neighborhood. I think I've always worked with like, not straight with the EU, but like the, the embassies. I worked a lot with the Gotha Institute. Like I met many dope people through them. My producer, I met them through Gotha Institute. You know, he's, he's Ghanaian, but he's based in Berlin. Like he's the one who made even the whole entire last album with the Susanna Weir. This is a guy from Ghana, but he lives in Berlin. That was through Gotha Institute. I work a lot with Allianz. And also, uh, I had 
my family in Europe. Uh, then we did an ad on the, the one that me and you were together. And I think that went well for them. Like, I think they, then is when they realized what kind of power I have in, as an artist in my community and also just in Kenya in general. And from then I went and, you know, sat with my team. We came up with a proposal and met the ambassador and just pitched, you know. We worked on a proposal for six months to pitch about because we already knew I already knew from just Kibera that young people are not registering uh, for election and they didn't care and they only registered when they got paid. Cause so an MCA will come like Pangani line 100, 100. That's when the only time that IBC desk people are. And that was Kibera, you know, and the apathy was insane. And I was like, you know, and this goes back to also something I learned in school because after UPenn I went to Harvard to do leadership organizing and action as a project for this kind of civic education stuff. What we want, what we are trying to do at the foundation is to have like youth leaders across the region and not only Kenya. And that's why I hosted Bobby Wine the first time he came to Kibera. And cause I want like, if I go to Uganda, we have like 10 guys like me. We go to Rwanda, we have 10 guys like me. We go to Burundi, we go to Congo, we come to Kenya. So we have like this African youth movement that is focused on leadership, sustainability, arts, everything. If we speak as Africa to anyone than speaking as Kenyans or Kibera people and realize we have the same issues all around in the region, I felt it was more powerful and people listen to us more because if we revolt here and we revolt in Uganda and revolt in Rwanda, then this has to change. But if you only revolt in Kibera, I know they, they are used to us now. But if Bobby Wine is talking about issues that are happening in Kibera and somebody in Rwanda is talking about issues that are happening in Madari. Then people realize like, oh, we need to, this can grow up and will be too much. And I learned that actually from Tom Boyer, who is my hero. And so we put this uh, proposal together, met them and, you know, pitch and it was going in line with whatever was happening to also in their agenda, being that this year is the year of the youth for them. And we told them like, yeah, we can pull these numbers. And I met uh, with Chebukati, which was also, I was not sure they'll agree. So I just gave him a call, you know, like, yo, I need to meet you now. And he was like, who are you? Um, I'm Octo, you've never heard of me? And he was like, okay, like, why, why do you want to meet me? I'm like, you've never heard a song called Chebukati? He's like, I've heard of it. Do you know what the song is about? We've never seen even the forms. We're still looking for the forms since 2017. But I told him like, yeah, I have this thing I want to talk to you about and we, we need your support. And by then they'd already closed registration, you know. So I tell them, uh, we want to do this concert where people will be registering at my event. That's registration is the entry. So you register, you party. You register, you party. And during this event, we want you to send officials who will be teaching people on voter registration, voter education. Because even people have registered, they don't know how to vote. You go there, you feel the wrong thing, or you put X in the people you don't like and tick in the people that's a spoiled vote. And we've had a history of a lot of spoiled votes. There's been more spoiled vote than sometimes even votes that have been voted in. And I told them, like, you guys are very not in touch with, with us as young people, and we can't relate to anything you're saying. The Kiswahili you're using is from Kamusi. Nobody speaks this stuff. Anyway, not even Mombasa. These young people want to see people who look like them, people who speak their language, people who they're not putting up a show, they are who they are. We need you to support us. We need you to bring those kids in those events and, and you know, register people 
and give those education, give us papers that we need to understand this better. And he was, he was very supportive. We had only had one meeting and he said like, yeah, yeah we will do this, we'll support you with this. And because they were also struggling with that at that point. And so it was, a, I think, perfect timing. And also with the EU, it was, it was tough to, you know, get them to convince them to do this kind of stuff, being a foreign aid that they're not most of the time allowed to do this stuff. And as a foundation, we're allowed to do this stuff as Kenyans. So it, it was just, it, it worked perfectly. And then when IBC on board, yeah, the partnership matured. So it's it mostly civic education and we were registering people until our second last event. The Mombasa one is when we started verification. But before in Kibera, we were registering people and people like in Kibera alone, we had 7,000 people. And that was our first event, but that was home. So I expected it to be wild. It was too wild. No, I don't think I've seen, I think only I've seen a politician pull a, a crowd like that there. But besides, they even thought I was going to announce I was running for president because it was too packed, too packed. And so there we did registration. We did registration in Eldoret. We did registration in Kisumu. And then in Mombasa, we started verification. And now verification is ending on 4th June. But now we've finished that. And now we're just starting the second route, which is now peace and reconciliation messages and just having talks like this. I think people really underestimate that people not not everyone healed from 207, but I think the country moves so fast and people think everybody has healed. And going in those areas, many people haven't. And also now we want to start having those dialogues on, on ground and people to speak their pain and people to reconcile and have more and want more peace messages between now and September actually, even past election. I'm currently partnering with the you know European Union and the African Union actually. They come together and one is mostly to support different programs. I don't only work with them on the this civic program only. There's a lot, there's uh, juvenile reforms that we do at, at our foundation and we want them to get involved to, you know, assist us because they have more know-how on how those stuff work. Uh, there's women, we work with women uh, in entrepreneurship spaces, which many times when people hear this, they, they think this has to be like rich, learned people. These are women from Kibera who do way doper businesses than anybody I've met. And we want to bring them in a level where they can sell their products in the West, not only in Kibera, because we can compete with those, everybody like importing or exporting stuff. So yeah, this is, uh, this is some of areas of our partnerships that we are working on now, and we are looking forward to actually expand because there's more, we just started an educational program in the rural areas. I started uh, WASH, I see WASH, WASH is you know, water and sanitation. Uh, that's the program I did uh, 2020, 2021 was water and sanitation and food storage because during COVID, many people from our neighborhoods were not working. So the whole 2020, I was actually doing food distribution, the entire Nairobi County, but mostly in formal settlement. This was only as a foundation, but now we are looking, how can we partner with them to also have solutions for this stuff? So. We don't always have to give people food. I know people in Kibera who have 10 acres of land in the rural and they're suffering because they just don't have maybe the capital to make, to use that land to make a living. So they're here struggling, but they have 10 acres of land in Siaya. And it's, it's a very weird thing to think about it. And I've been trying to think on how can we get this, that people can go home and use these lands and get food, make money family than struggling here every day so there's more opportunities and we're looking forward and we're gonna push them you know they have to work with us it's not a please it's like this is us and this is who we are and this is our country and we want to make it better because I know of European countries that were like this 50 years ago 
And if I look at them now, it's too dope. It's too dope to know actually how much space we still have and how many things we can still do to make this uh, country an amazing place or the continent. I think in, in, a, in a leadership or like just election-wise, because I was remember the other day I was in KU for, they were giving awards for young leaders, so the KU leaders and stuff. And I told them what I've realized that I've gone, even when I was in school, I saw people going to this Mandela Fellowship stuff, Obama Fellowship, leadership, this. I never see these people running. I've never seen anybody from those programs run for any seat. I've never seen them talk against any, whether it's police brutality, whether it's just just living standards, nothing. So why are they going to these programs? So what I always tell people is that nobody's going to give you this stuff. This power we talk about and complain about, nobody's going to give it to us ever. And that is just a, a sad reality that it will take us to be too strong, too tough, and too confident to stand up and say, like, yeah, you know, we have to change things. And you don't have to change things from the parliament. I think that's also what people confuse. Like, power, having that power is, I think, is nice, but I feel like I've done more as a musician than I'll ever do if I was a member of parliament, because then it will constrain me to one area. But now I can walk to Trukana and do a project. I can walk to Garissa and do a project. Impact is not helping one million people. Impact is actually reaching two people, or one, ex one person, that is not you. And if that cha he changes, is a chain reaction because his family changes, his peers changes, his friends changes. But I think most of the time, many people try to think like changing a million people is easy. If it was easy, we would not be still, Kibera will not exist. You know, there's too much money that can change Kibera like this. But it's about changing this one person to change that person to change that person. But nobody will give it to you and nobody will come and tell you this is the way. Nobody have a blueprint to change, to success. It has to start with you. And you have to be more confident and you have to have more partnerships. I think we have to have more partnership. You can't do it alone. I learned that, that you can't do this stuff alone. And you have to get people who are like-minded. Because even now with this project, we are trying to involve many artists and all artists are bought by politicians. 90% of Kenyan artists are working for politicians. 90% of radio stations are working for politicians. So. That alone tells you like we, we, are, we are at a bad place. We are in a very bad place. So we only have social media that is free and now you have you. So you have to realize what is my power as a person in my neighborhood. Even if it's just plotienu, what can you do? What can you speak to those young people about? What can you speak to older people about and make a difference? And after that, it's a chain reaction. Legally Clueless, powered by the European Union, enhancing Kenyan ideas, creativity and entrepreneurship by supporting different sectors from tech, education, agriculture and healthcare. Visit EU in Kenya on Facebook to find out more on what's happening near you. I hope you enjoyed that story by Octo as much as I did. Recording it was just so powerful. Like I left that session super charged, super like proud to be African and... It was really dope and I got to sample some of his music that is yet to be released and e I don't think I'm allowed to okay, I, I shouldn't share any <laughs> I shouldn't share any details about just know that he's about to drop some very amazing, very Kenyan. Oh, let me not give it away. Very, very amazing music is coming your way from, from Octo soon. But if you like that story and you want to discover 
more Africans who are just doing some amazing things in tech, in agriculture, in the creative spaces, you need to check out EU in Kenya on Facebook. I've put a link to their Facebook page in the show notes. If you're listening on a platform that doesn't have show notes, just go to EU in Kenya on Facebook. And you can see all of the work that they're doing with Octo there. And hey, you never know, they might be coming to your county soon. So yeah, check it out. I've also put links to Octo's socials and his foundation pages as well. So that if... He said something in the work that he wants to do in communities that you feel like you want to partner with him on or you just want to get involved in one way or another check out his socials and if you want to share your story on this podcast that's very possible in the i don't know why i sang that but in the show notes there is a link to a google form just fill it and i will get back to you i spent tons of May recording stories and it was just so beautiful and meeting some of you in person and virtually was just like super awesome so we also record stories virtually so it doesn't matter where in the world you are we believe every single African story is valid and we want to hear yours speaking of hearing stuff if you are in Kenya Legally Clueless plays on Trace FM every Monday and Wednesday at 1pm and 11pm and Fridays at 1pm so if you want a list of all the frequencies that you can catch Trace FM on head over to triple w www.traceradio.co.ke and I'm going to end this episode with something that I read at a point this week that I was like yeah 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 this is true and it was basically talking about why am I swallowing my words basically (laughs) saying I'm going to just paraphrase it that we need to slow down a bit more you know I feel like We live life very rushed because we think we don't have enough time. And basically you have an abundance of time. Time is a a construct that we made to make things run a bit more orderly. So we have an abundance of time. So find a balance between, yes, of course, chasing your goals, but don't forget to live while trying to chase life and trying to chase these goals slow down and take in the now you're not gonna run out of time it's not a competition there's no finish line we really are only assured of now so don't let it pass you by that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode